0: Listening to Behind the Lens. And yes, you are listening to Behind the Lens. Welcome back for another week. This is a fantastic week, if I do say so myself. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. You can find my reviews and and interviews around the globe, printing online 24 7. But every Monday, you can find me right here on Adrenaline Radio. Live at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, and where we go behind the lens and below the line with tech, the most wonderful technicians, directors, sound engineers, sound editors, mixers, cinematographers, writers that the industry has to offer. And we have one of the industry's very best. Here as our in-studio guest today, I am thrilled to have music editor Ken Carmen with us. Welcome, Ken.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: I am. Everybody, all of our regular listeners know of our great love and appreciation for for, for Formosa Group. And even though Mark Mangini came and didn't bring his Oscar to show off, uh, but... Thoughtless. I, I know. I know. But... Sound is such an overlooked element of film production, of television production. But you do something very specific with sound as a music editor. When everybody thinks of sound, they just think of general sound editing. But a music editor is something totally different. And originally, music editors back in the 30s, they weren't acknowledged separately. They were just lumped in. It wasn't until 1940 that music editors, editors suddenly suddenly got their due. Right. And now, granted, you weren't around in 1940, uh. <laughs> but you have certainly made a lasting mark on the industry with the work that you've been doing for the past 38 years or so.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I've it, I started, I think we were talking earlier, I sort of started back in the industrial age, of uh, post-production so my earliest credits were done on uh, you know movieolas and later flatbeds so I've watched a you know a, a really uh, profound change in the in the at least the technology of the business although um, that's not the only difference the the when I started out the job was really tied to servicing the needs of a composer mm-hmm who didn't have the advantage at that time of having a video of the film to work with and who relied on uh, you know, a very detailed, uh, almost second-by-second uh, uh, second descriptions in, in the form of notes of, uh, of, the, of the, a scene in which they needed to cover the music. And um, they also needed support in terms of figuring out the tempos that would allow them to to uh, hit the various you know uh, hit points, cuts, and other things. So mm-hmm. it was it was uh, pretty much restricted to that. But in the last twenty plus years. Um, um, music editing and music editors are expected to basically create temporary scores for films. Sometimes even before a composer has been chosen. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, in the earlier days when we were still on film, the uh, the expectations of that were fairly limited. But now, when you're sitting there with access to all the music ever written and uh, Pro Tools, uh, you can really develop a pretty you know, specifically tailored soundtrack, uh, so that the film can be first place so that the director, uh, can explore what works musically, but also they can show it to audiences and to studios and, and get a sense of what their, you know, their vision. So Mm
0: -hmm. how does one, how would you define a music editor?
1: Well, it's, it's hard to define in, in, uh, in uh, in a sentence, because it's, a, it's still a kind of a bifurcated job. There's the uh, relationship with the composer, which is, uh, you know, your uh, technical and sometimes moral support for uh, the person writing the music, but then there's also um, helping during the post-production editing process, the director uh, determine what kind of music works and what he's looking for in terms of not only... Uh, where the music is going to be, but what I mean, there's a thousand ways to break a heart, and uh, and um, and when you have, as I say, a database with all of the music ever written for films and otherwise that you can um, superimpose over a film that's uh, a scene that's being developed, uh, you really learn a lot about what will actually stick to that film and what mm-hmm. will actually support the the scene. So. I guess, um, you know, a musical sound designer, that sometimes it goes that far. Sometimes you're, um, uh, you know, you're creating sound out of nothing. I mean, in other words, you're taking, you can process things. So if you're really looking at a scene that demands some real unique stuff, then it does become almost sound design, even though the likelihood of that staying in the movie for the final is really slim, Mm -hmm. you know. I did a lot of that on a cure for wellness, where I I was putting together suites of music and sound, and a lot of it was processed, and it was all very conceptual. But I I had not seen a frame of the picture; it was all done to notions from the script. So,
0: you know, it's interesting because uh, I've interviewed quite a few composers. Back in the fall, when the awards season started, I sat down with Dustin O'Halloran and Volker Bertelman, uh, Volker Bertelman mm-hmm. who composed for Lion. Right. Interestingly, a lot of their music was in the temp score, the, Dustin, mm-hmm. Dustin's own music that he and his band normally do. Right. So, I, And I find that quite fascinating because then, for composers, if their own music is already aired, but then they've got to go against the temp right. to come up with something.
1: Yeah, the the temp up is a is a you know it's a persistent problem from a creative standpoint I mean it's always exciting to see uh, you know start to figure out what is actually working but um, the the temp worms its way into your brain and into your heart and it's really hard to forget about it
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and not compare what you're hearing uh, that's new it's mm-hmm. it, it's a problem that's it's not going to go away temp dubs are here to stay they're really part of modern post-production right. But but it is an issue and i always wonder uh whether and sometimes if i'm working if there, a composer is assigned to a show but i'm doing the temp dubs i'll ask would you prefer i use your music or do you not care i can use whatever and the answer is not always the same because they're either going to be competing against John Williams or competing against themselves. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I, I find one director I find interesting is James Gunn because when James writes these Guardians of the Galaxy films, right. he's already determined the music yeah. that he's using. Yeah. So that is written in as as Gunn is writing. Yeah. The music is there, so it's like your temp score is it's pretty, it's pretty much done. Yeah,
1: you've got an outline, right? Exactly. Um, that's not usually the case right. at all, of course um, you're usually just starting from scratch and you're usually in a state of prolonged panic until you find that <laughs> one thing I mean it, the the obviously the options are infinite and um, you know you sort of Try to narrow down the things you're choosing from to things that might seem, you know, appropriate in terms of the genre, mm-hmm. and uh, and maybe the composer that they ultimately plan to to hire. But um, you're just laying these things up one after the other and failing
0: again and again, <laughs> and again and again.
1: Finally, finally something sort of sticks, and you kind of you start working from there.
0: Now, when you started in the business as a music editor. Did you have any clue about the highs and lows and the pitfalls of being a music editor? What led you to become a music editor?
1: Well, I um, I was a, a, a high school dropout, <laughs> so I needed a job, and uh, – uh, friend of uh, our family was a a rather illustrious music editor. There was, especially back then, if there is such a thing, her name was Elsa Blankstead. And uh, she has a list of credits as long as anybody's. Uh, I'm sure she's retired now. But um, she called me to let me know that this uh, sound house was looking for a driver. And that's how it started. And that's how it started for a lot of the people I know. You'd start as a gopher or a driver. And um, and and just wouldn't go away. He just hung out until, and the things back then were on film. There was a very prescribed a method for once you sort of crossed the threshold, you were uh, you know you were going to be an apprentice for four years and an assistant for four years before mm-hmm. you. And, and back then also, all most aspects of post-production, including film editing, sound editing, and music editing, all, you know, you were basically had to learn to handle film. And so it was uh, – uh, it, it at some point, yeah, I suppose at some point once you really learned the, the ins and outs of running film on reels and sync and splicing and all of that, then there was a point at which you could – spread out, you know, make a choice. Mm-hmm. And I think my uh, initial interest was in film editing. But um, some of the people who were my mentors did both film and music editing. And uh, um, I, I was working at a, an industrial film house doing film editing. And in, those, in a situation like that, you're editing the narration and the film and the uh, music as well. And uh, one of the guys that was, uh, I was working under was also – his name was Dan Carlin Sr., uh, really uh, a big music editor. And he started a company and asked if I wanted to, to join and I abandoned my film editing aspirations and never looked back.
0: The idea of that permanent position and a paycheck helped. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> also, uh, uh, I just liked the job. I, I liked it right away. It was always very interesting, always fun to me.
0: Now, did you have a musical background?
1: Um, not so much. I played drums in a band and but no i 'm not a, a music student. as I say, I dropped out of high school, so i didn 't know anything about anything, really.
0: but at least you know you understand tempo and rhythm, and yeah, because I would imagine for a music editor, you do need those to understand those elements.
1: You absolutely have to be musical. You have to you have to have a sense of music and a sense of musical form and you also have to have a sense of what it takes to tell a story with music. That's really what you're you're
0: doing. I was gonna say, and you have to be a storyteller of right. sorts. Because right. it's what you're putting together that is going to pick up the dramatic rise or the comedic lull. Right. Or the silence.
1: Right. Which is as I say the a thousand ways to break a heart and some of them don't involve music at all. You also have to, to know when to 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 say, look, this is working just fine. Mm-hmm. We don't need to be slathering sentimentality over it or tension over it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so yeah, you're really trying to serve the, the, the film.
0: You know, and, and I find it interesting. We had this discussion. I was moderating a and a for this new film, From Nowhere, mm-hmm. the other night. And a very talented actress and turned writer-director, Jess Weixler, who I'm thrilled to call her a friend and have known her since her first film. Um, she was in the audience, and she brought up a very interesting point that I had noticed um, there's absolutely no music of any kind in the film until the final credit. Right. And it's huh. not often that you see that.
1: I, um, I worked on Castaway, which, um,
0: which... Which we have here. Everybody, when you watch the videos... The video of this show, you will see a sampling of some of Ken's uh, work over the decades. Castaway is sitting here.
1: Yeah, I'm in, I'm intimidated by this stack of VHS. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm
0: old, wise, and well preserved, as are my belongings.
1: <laughs> but the the the, uh, the concept, uh, Bob Zemeckis' concept, and that was that there was going to be no music. There's some source music at the beginning before the plane crash. But in terms of the time on the island, no music at all. And, and not only that, but really no, in terms of sound design, no insects, no birds. And, uh, and so the first note of music you hear, at least the first note of underscore that you hear, is not until uh, Tom Hanks makes it over that wave. And uh, Alan wrote really one of my favorite pieces of film music that starts there. And then it's repeated a few times through the end of the movie. But that film was definitely served by not... Gilding the lily, you
0: know. Mm-hmm. Do you have a preference when you're working on a film? Of do you like to have be, with all the tools at your disposal, and with all the emotion that music brings? Do you like it when you have a challenge of incorporating more musical elements?
1: I'm not sure what you mean. What when
0: when you're working on a temp, or mm-hmm. you know, or moving forward beyond that point, mm-hmm. do you prefer to have? More of an input, and more music required.
1: um not necessarily. I, once again, you're just um, you're just trying to tell the story. It's hard uh, even for music editors to not fall in love with what they're doing. and even in attempt to you know you'll say, "I'm going to try this, and you try something you go, "Oh, that's good, and then just for the sake of exploration, you'll do another another pass with a completely different take and and uh, you always almost like the one you did last best it's just <laughs> the way it, it works and you have to you have to, to see if you can step back I also you know and it happens it's not it's not infrequent that you'll really um, you know get down in the weeds with some piece of music that you're trying to uh, um, uh, you know temp a, a film with. And after hours and hours and hours of hacking and sawing and nailing and buffing, you play the scene without it, and you realize, yeah, man, damn, <laughs> didn't didn't need that.
0: You now, now, once you started on your trajectory and went to work, you know, as a music editor, mm-hmm. you know, what? How did you fo- go about your path, getting to where where you are now with Formosa? Because as we talked about before you know, before the show, you essentially came in to Formosa and got to start the music group division.
1: Well, right. Um, the, the 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 Formosa music group was actually grew out of a uh, uh, a company that was formed by uh Lon Bender and Wiley Stateman, you know, twenty years ago, uh, where, you know, those guys are real entrepreneurs, and uh, they started and ran Soundalux, uh, sound but they um, every time they saw some need, some niche need, it, it sing, things sometimes obscure as, as micro, m- manufacturing microphones and things mm-hmm. like that, they would start a company. They'd find somebody who knew how to do that and say, y- you're our company. <laughs> and, uh, and that's what happened to, to me and my partner, Bill Abbott. They wanted. They decided. Why don't we? Why don't we get into music editing and find a couple of music editors? And um, I had sort of let it known, uh, you know, in our little world that I was sort of tired of moving my stuff from one studio to another. I kind of wanted a base of operations. And uh, they heard about that and they they swooped down. And uh, it started with just uh, two or three of us. And over the course of a few years, we had 20 music editors. Wow. And um, and, and uh, a sort of migrated to Formosa Music Group when um, uh, the sort of associated companies around Sound Deluxe were bought by a, a, a sort of a, a private equity group that didn't really seem to understand the nature of the business.
0: And we, we knew we could find a better home, so... Uh, so now, how much of your own stuff did you accumulate over the years as a music editor?
1: Well, um, a lot, uh, but um, most of that is, is you know, is in a scrap heap somewhere now. Uh, I started out when there with movieolas and and uh editing tables and reels and film racks and synchronizers and sync heads various things like that all of the all of the uh, kind of uh uh, steampunk stuff you used to need to uh cut film but um you know pro tools is now the axe of choice and everybody has their own you know pro Tools system and Mm -hmm. uh uh, so all that other stuff is is suitable for a museum, but <laughs> you know, really, really kind of when you clear clear out the garage, that's one mm-hmm. of the first things to go. Now, so
0: now, have you built up your own temp library? You know, so many guys, Foley uh, sound guys who do Foley, they build up Foley libraries for sounds. Sound designers build up. Mark Mangini talked about this. Mm-hmm. You know. An accumulation of sounds over the years Scotts talked about this. you come up with sp- uh, particular sounds for something and you just start building a library does it work does do music editors have something similar?
1: well they certainly um you know f- uh Formosa Music Group has a vast vast you know digital library of mm-hmm. film scores and um and on top of that, although maybe uh, um, not as disciplined as at least I should have been, there there are things that you tend to use over and over again. They have some need, especially for a temp score, whether sure. they're percussive hits or string sustains or eerie sounds that are useful in certain kinds of pictures or at least useful in terms of constructing a, a score. Just lots of tricks that... And certain certain things just you you use them again and again. And I sometimes put myself in the position of having to find it again and again and again. <laughs> and again. But yeah, but but yes, percussion and certain kind of um, musical effects, tones and things like that are always nice to have on hand. And some people are are uh, more disciplined about cataloging that stuff than I am. I've worked on films with composers who who give me the score, uh, in, 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 uh, the form of suites, long suites of thematic suites and things like that. And they, they stem it out so that all of the, uh, uh, instruments or sections at least are separate. And you find just world-class samples and that kind of stuff that you could use again and again and again. But the, um, process of having to kind of go through them and, and catalog them is, is, a
0: very you know, time consuming very laborious
1: yeah so i think some people do it i i haven't i haven't managed to to do that
0: uh, it's kind of like when i was pulling out you know going through your extensive resume of uh, about 150
1: oh my god films
0: if not more <laughs> and you know pulling out visual aids for today some of your your classics your greatest hits and there were i've got about 10 15 more Film VHS, mind you.
1: That don't fit on the table.
0: Well, no, they actually I couldn't I couldn't find my stepladder that was high enough to get to the top <laughs> shelf where they are they are very I could see them. I saw right where they were all sitting, but I couldn't get up high enough to pull them off to bring them today. Things but I wanna talk about some of your greatest hits, okay. if we may can. And I have to start for all of the classic film fans out there. This, you know, Xanadu, panned by so many when it came out, not by me. I, it is a guilty pleasure. It has since become a Broadway show. There is this huge cult following. But as classic film fans know, this was Gene Kelly's last film. Right. You are one of the few guys in the business who's still around working worked on a film that Gene Kelly was in. Right. That in and of itself is a piece of history.
1: It It is, and and uh, there's all kinds of really sort of interesting sort of minutiae surrounding that film. Not only Gene Kelly's last film, but he also choreographed it and uh, was by all accounts, you know, the, the gentleman that we imagined him to be. But, you know, ELO did a whole soundtrack for it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in terms of the film's reception, Jeff Lynn credits Xanadu with, with ending ELO, <laughs> but it's actually fantastic songs.
0: Fantastic. But the film, but you know, we were talking earlier about some of the sound mm-hmm. and some of the things that you were creating right. for this. And yeah. I, I find it very fascinating and I think the listeners would love to hear about that.
1: Well, if you know the film, you know that one of the editorial devices used throughout the film were something called uh, sliver wipes, which were actually we called them silver wipes because they were Joel Silver. Was the well. yeah, early in his career uh, was as obsessive and intense as he as he is now, and he wanted a, a, a particular, unique sort of uh, little musical. Event for each one of these wipes, mm-hmm. you know, which came in all different forms. Sometimes they moved across the screen. Sometimes they were spirals. Sometimes, mm-hmm. and so I was brought on with uh, Michael Boddicker, who was a, a famous uh, keyboardist and a composer in his own right. And we sat in a studio, a a analog studio, just to 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 um, be specific, because it, the things that we did would be pretty easy to do now on a, mm-hmm. uh, with a digital keyboard but we were still on 24 track tape and we were sometimes and none, none of these events were more than a second long yeah but there were a lot of them and uh, and they all you know were filled up 24 tracks of uh, you know with a sometimes they were vo- we vocalized them some and processed them sometimes we turned the tape upside down and it was really fun it was really Nuts and bolts, uh, sound design, really.
0: Now, for those silver wipes, uh, were they just done in temp, or did they make it into the oh, final? Oh no, no, no,
1: yeah, no, they Your were all. Your version made it. Yeah, they were all. They that they they didn't have anything for them in the in the you know in terms of edit, the editorial team didn't have a stand in or a, a temp version of that. They were all they were all done from scratch.
0: But I, and they're fabulous in the film. Yeah,
1: they're really good. Because
0: they're, every single one of those is tied in with Olivia Newton-John's character of Kira and the whole idea of the Greek gods and the seven muses. And every time they would skate around with the, the beautiful visual effects, we'd have a silver swipe.
1: Yeah, yeah. It was uh, definitely the inmates running the asylum in that. We did it at a studio. Uh, it's no longer there. Uh, in, a group four. On uh, I think it's on Seward. It was on Seward in mm-hmm. in Hollywood. Uh, uh, really, one of the first kind of mid-sized scoring stages. A lot of movies were recorded there, and uh, and we sort of block booked it. It was incredibly expensive to make these little <laughs> these little effects. But
0: but you know you, you go from a film you know like Xanadu, then you've got something like Contact. Or, you know, an action film like Eraser mm-hmm. or Showtime, right. which is a comedy action film. How do you approach, uh, you know, working on each one of these films? Because they're very different. And then you also have a blend of animation and live action with something like Stuart Little and Mighty Joe Young.
1: Right. Well, um, that's something, you know, you learn over, over a period of time. Every, every film is different. And even if it's the same director, it has different demands, and uh, um, so yeah, you you you. That's why you really step in with a clean slate every time, unless it's a sequel. Then you know you're going to be uh, referring back to the 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 first episode. Mm-hmm. But. Um, yeah, every, every film is different. I mean, a lot of my career was spent with uh, Alan Silvestri, starting with Back to the Future, and including, um, you know, uh, Stuart Little in Contact and all of Bob Zemeckis' films. So there was some continuity there. You, you you know, you're very used to what Alan's process and what he needs from you. And, um, you know, actually... From a certain point on, probably from what lies beneath, um, uh, Bob stopped previewing films in the usual way and, and stopped doing tempubs. Generally speaking, so there was not a lot of. Uh, I, well, I did. I, I, I'm I'm wrong. Actually, I did temp Contact. I remember that now,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, that was you know that was a, a, a that was a, an interesting film to do i mean you really had to uh you know i mean it's sort of episodic the early part of the film doesn't doesn't necessarily promise what what comes to, out yeah yeah, yeah. This that's a really great i'm a big fan of contact actually i
0: love yeah. contact and that's one of the great things like this year i think probably akin to that would be arrival
1: right that's a beautiful score i love that score
0: it is very beautiful. Yeah. Very beautiful. And
1: re- really inventive. I thought that was the vocalizations, the use of that.
0: Yeah, and I think we, we've seen a lot of that this year. Yeah. More so than in the past few years, the music has really stepped up, be it thanks to music editors who come up with some great temp.
1: Right, that can happen. That
0: influences <laughs> what is to come. Yeah, or just because. People are, are becoming more aware of the importance of not just music and score, but the whole soundscape, sonic scape right. that goes with it.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, Michael Levy is up for uh, uh, the Academy Award. To, and oh.
0: <laughs> I I sat down with Micah for almost almost an hour.
1: Really? Yeah, she's uh, uh, you know, Under the Skin was. It's hard to you know. There's been millions and millions of of. Scores and composers, and you know, it's hard to to break new ground. But under the skin
0: was that was eerie, is the word eerie, but uh, almost an extraterrestrial kind of eerie.
1: Yeah, I'm not quite sure how (laughs) the level at which it works, but it really gets under your skin, no pun intended, and um, and uh, is so potent with. So little, you know what I mean mm-hmm. when you hear that that crazy kind of little screechy motif every time you hear it. Yeah. It's really fantastic.
0: Yeah, you know, and then now with Jackie, she really plays with the strings. Yeah. And, you know, going deep for almost a corral right. Sensibility. Yeah. Yeah. Are you ever surprised after you've done a temp with what an ultimate score is? Um
1: some composers take the temp very seriously. They, they, if the, if, uh, with the idea that the music editor has been working with the director, and and understanding how tough it is to sort of break out of a uh, sort of a, a an approach that has everybody decided decides works. It's um, some guys they take it seriously. They really use it as a as kind of a roadmap to one degree or another. There are other composers, including Alexander Splatt, who I've worked with, um, who, you know, doesn't worry the temp so much. He kind of... And he, I mean, he'll take it for whatever it's worth, you know, especially if the director says, I like what this piece does mm-hmm. here, or sometimes just as relevant, um, I don't like what this... <laughs> which happens. It's, it's, yes. it's, it's equally valuable if you can say, we put this in here, it's not quite right. The only thing that might work is that, you know, so it's valuable information, but he doesn't, uh, uh I think he, he refers to it as little as possible I mean, it's to just, <laughs> you know, and, and with, with great, great results, you know, so. Uh,
0: d- uh, <laughs> yes. The end result with Desplat speaks for itself. Yeah,
1: yeah. I think
0: every single, I can't think of a bad a bad score that he's done.
1: No, no, and he he um, he's crazily prolific, and I haven't figured out how he does that because he, unlike some uh, composers, um, he, he doesn't really have a big infrastructure around him, a big, you know, team of guys. It's very small, and he does he really does it all himself.
0: That's probably what how he gets it done and is so prolific yeah, because he's got his own. That he's got the system down. He's got his meth. He's got his rhythm.
1: It's the uh, yeah. But sometimes I'm just impressed with the sort of Newtonian physics of it. I, I have called him uh, as a scoring session is approaching and saying, you know, there's like all this music to write. Should we postpone the choral section, you know, mm-hmm. uh, scoring session or whatever? He goes, nah, I'll be all right. And I just <laughs> take him at his word, and he shows up on the stage with everything done. So,
0: oh my god. That's amazing, you know. I I find it fascinating that you've got a film like Xanadu where you've got standalone music, you know, by ELO that mm-hmm. comes in. You have a film like Enchanted that is very reliant on the music as being part of the film, not to the extent of a traditional musical or as Damien Chazelle and Justin Hurwitz have done with La La Land, right? But. Do you ever get an inkling? Are you given any of those the vocal songs when you're developing a temp, such as for Enchanted?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I, I had access to all of that. We did a temp dub up at uh, Skywalker, and um, and it was a, a pretty intense uh, um, temp process because, aside from the 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 songs that they had. Uh, they still needed to sort of sell this wacky story in the sense of Giselle as, as sort of, uh, you know, uh, sprinkling fairy dust wherever she goes, mm-hmm. so to speak. And um, it was, that, was a, that was a fun one. I, I really liked that. We really had to explore a lot. And I, I noticed that you have uh, on the table Practical Magic, which was a film I worked on also with Alan, but I remember... Uh, using a lot of Practical Magic in the temp of, uh, of
0: Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh my and I love, every time Practical Magic is on TV and on cable it's one of those films that you just automatically, you stop on and you must watch.
1: Right, right, if you stop you're, you're there. You're there
0: yeah. and a lot of it is the music with that film
1: that was one of those things. It's a. It's a, a, a where Alan was called in on a kind of a nine one one. They had a score. They would recorded music previously, and and it wasn't working.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: uh, and so they brought in a new music supervisor, who immediately said, "You got to bring Alan in here." And uh, and um, it's. I, I'm always fascinated by. I, I think uh, Alan, in particular, sort of liked the. The, the restrictions in time and, uh, and also the, you know, you, you just go forward and you don't have to look back. You don't have the time for that. I think he probably did that score in two weeks and, uh, Wow. From, from looking at it to recording mm-hmm. it. And, uh, it's sort of a testimony to sometimes all this worrying and back and forth and revisions, you know, are, are, you know, for what he, he nailed it because he had to, you know,
0: Oh, well, I think we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back with our very special guest, Ken Carmen. And welcome back to Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias and I am thrilled to be here with the fabulous Formosa Group music editor, Ken Carmen. And uh, we're talking music editing, composing. And all that fun stuff that goes with film. And so I'm so thrilled to have you here, Ken. This is absolutely fascinating.
1: Thanks. It's fun.
0: And, you know, of course, I've got to ask you, you know, as we're talking about the different types of films and the composers and all, first of all, I've got to bring up American Pastoral. Uh, Because Alexander Despot in the score is something that I talked to you and McGregor specifically about. Right. So I'm curious as to your work, on Because we've all heard the beautiful Desplat score, that very timeless for a film that, while set in a specific time period, is timeless in and of the messaging right. in the story it tells. You know, w- was it a traditional process with Desplat working on that?
1: You know, it, uh, it, it, I, I suppose for Alexander it was. I think it was a very low-budget film. Their initial... Uh, thought was that they wouldn't have a music editor. They had a uh, a, a film editor who was good with music. Mm -hmm. I think uh, Ewan and Alexander just worked very closely to develop that score. They recorded it, and it was sometime after that that they realized that they had some issues. Uh, Both, I think, there were some conflicts with the uh, production company over the tone of the music, and also some... Uh, specific things that um, Ewan had liked about the mock-ups that didn't necessarily quite translate very little, uh, sometimes real minutiae, but that can be important um, that didn't necessarily make it to the final recordings mm-hmm. so I, g- I got this call and spent you know maybe a week before the dub and through the dub uh, with Ewan and, uh, and, the, and the post team it was uh you know uh it's a heartbreaking film i have to say very much so and uh and i think that the attention to detail r- really helped but just as an example um alexander had played the piano on his mock up and then the uh pianist in the studio at abbey road uh you know beautiful piano player but there was something missing and so Um, and this is just sort of one of those little aspects of the job at because, uh, I had access to the separate track, separate piano track. I was able to just sort of adjust it in little, sometimes micro frames Mm -hmm. to get it to, to feel, um, in terms of the phrasing and the spacing Mm -hmm. and the dynamics, just like the, the Mm mockup. And, uh, And then there were also some things, and it always happens. It's one really um, uh, uh, unwavering part of the job. Things change when you get onto a dubbing stage. And sometimes the implications of what you've done on a studio when you didn't have the imposition of sound or even dialogue sometimes, you realize, okay, we're stepping all over something. Maybe we should... uh, uh, edit this music to end earlier or to have more space knit. And there mm-hmm. was a lot of that in American Pastoral where we were just sort of changing the framing around specific little moments, dramatic moments.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, and, and, uh, uh, in a more general sense, it's really rare that, um, that you, uh, score a film and then, and then it, and then it doesn't change. It will keep changing. And, and so, Music has to be edited and adjusted for the change in length of scenes or the extension of scenes. Mm-hmm. And, um, but um, yeah, American Pastoral, I I, uh, I really have affection for that movie and and uh, really um, admiration for Ewan in terms of his. I know he's his first time director. Yes. He didn't. He didn't seem like a first time director uh, in terms of of what he wanted.
0: Mm-hmm. And in terms of what he delivered, belies him as a first-time director. Right, right,
1: absolutely. The only thing where his inexperience showed, and I I was happy to be the one to show him, he wasn't quite sure what could be done after the fact. Mm -hmm. And so I think he was always pleased to be able to say, God, I wish this was more like this and be able to do that.
0: Well, I know for years, every time we'd see each other, I'm like, Ewan, when are you going to get behind the camera? Because he's like, I want to, I want to. And so when finally we were doing the press for American Pastoral and I said, I'm not, I don't have to ask you anymore. He goes, no, now you have to ask me, when am I going behind the camera again? And did I, he
1: have an answer for that? Cause
0: well, he was so thrilled to get to do this film. And you mentioned it being low budget and he actually, he, that was one of the things that he mentioned that that's one reason that he thinks that they let him direct it was because it was a lower budget film, right? But I also think that brings out more creativity in the director and in and in all, all the disciplines of the film.
1: I I, I agree. I, I think that that people, um, you, you know, it, it, people have to focus within certain restrictions. It really it really helps them be like more creative. If you have all the options available to you, available to you, and money is no object, sometimes. That doesn't work in the favor of the final final film, you
0: know? Yeah, just, be- just because you have all the tools in the toolbox does not mean you need to paint with all the colors. Right. right. And so often I see that happen with a lot of first-time directors, a lot of new directors, and they think that, okay, we're going to show off all of our skills. But the one skill that they always overlook is the music, I, when you 're working on a low budget, no budget, especially some of these at a fest level, mm-hmm. you know it, like a dances with films kind of festival level film, um, they 're not thinking about music or a music editor. say, like, "Oh okay, yeah, okay, we can just write this and slap it in." But then when you 're watching you 've got a disconnect there because the music has not been edited to correspond with the thematic or with the same tempo of the dialogue flow. Right. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's, it's, it's a, um, it's a learning process. I mean, I th- I think of film music sometimes. It's like working with nitroglycerin. A little, a little bit of it goes a long way. You yeah. can really, it's powerful stuff. And, um, even, you know, even driving here today, you know, if you switch between one radio station and another, it changes the whole tenor of, Of the the experience. And that's the same – I mean, God knows I I come upon this all all the time. I mean, every time you're temping and you're putting random pieces of music against the scene, it's just shocking the the effect it has. It completely transforms it into Mm – it can transform tragedy into comedy. I mean, it's extreme.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, how exciting is it for you because you were the music editor on the very first Pirates of the Caribbean. Yes. Curse of the Black Pearl. Yes. And now here you are back for number 5. Yes. You know, what has what has transpired in the course of time <laughs> that has influenced your approach to this part- to working as a music editor on this particular Pirates.
1: Well, it's uh, it's a really good question. I mean, the, it's, you're dealing with a, a franchise, and that carries with it a certain you know. The, there's there are themes that are going to have to be uh, uh, paid attention to. You're right. Gonna, um, and uh, but every again, every story is different. I, I really like this i don't know if you've seen any of it it's going to be really good just
0: the trailers that they they've let out
1: yeah it's i haven't
0: seen any long lead stuff or uh, yet so
1: it's good it's really fun and it's it's sort of uh um it's it's a refreshing you know sequel it really is and uh but but you know once again it, it might as well you know you have a palette you know you you have um uh a whole uh, kind of library of themes that are going to have to be paid attention to but ultimately every story has its unique sections and mm-hmm. and it's and it and the story is different I mean you have different relationships between characters you really just have to take them one at a time and you know the only advantage and sometimes it's not an advantage sometimes it's a little bit of a handcuff that you say you know um, there was the an opening scene, I won't give anything away, but there was an opening action scene and it really lent itself to all of the big pirate themes, the big action Pirates of the Caribbean themes. But you realize that by the time you made it through this five minutes, you've basically started your movie with all the biggest, you know, orchestral mm-hmm. uh, uh Action things, you know, you basically run out your whole palette in five minutes. and <laughs> What are you going to do? You know, you've got you've got two hours of movie after that that are also going to have action and stuff like that. So you have to sort of see if you can find, you know, uh, similar film, you know, similar film music, mm-hmm. whether it's from uh, uh, Hans or anybody else or all right. of the millions of uh, sort of uh, – uh, you know versions of the other movies that have sort of used that style and tr- and try and and save your keep your powder dry for the you know two hours that are
0: mm-hmm. are
1: in front of you. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the you know that the the first Pirates that's a miracle of a score and also done under great duress in very very little time because um, Alan Silvestri was originally hired to do that film mm-hmm. and ultimately was replaced by Hans. And his crew, Klaus Bedelt, is the composer of record, but it was really the whole um, RCP crew, mm-hmm. and um, it's it's just it's classic. As is, you know, um, Sherlock Holmes. The scores for Sherlock are yeah. really some of my favorite film music ever.
0: You know, is it because I know with so many of these films, anybody who's familiar with with classic movies, especially. I think are more aware of this than the millennials or today's audience with films, but there are definite themes. I think Gone with the Wind, um, Max Steiner's soundtrack uh, scoring, Mm. perfect example, character themes, right? Everybody has a character theme. I know Aaron Zygman and I talked about this when he scored the animated film escape from planet earth, seven main characters, seven main themes that you are then interweaving. When you're working temp scores, and then when you're then editing the music thereafter, does that does that really up the ante in terms of challenge? When you have a multiplicity of characters, and each one has their own theme that's being interwoven with, as you know an underlying aspect of an overriding theme.
1: Right. It's um. Uh, in in the context of a up, it's pretty hard to be that specific. Mm-hmm. You're really sort of looking for maybe the, th- the three big themes, mm-hmm. and and you're also sort of looking for at least I'm I'm trying to find you know a, a, a theme that is it's really the theme of the movie. It you can apply it to various characters because it's in the context of this bigger arc, mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, so yeah it's it's pretty hard, not impossible, I suppose, with enough time and thought, but you know you don't usually have that <laughs> to to sort of uh, address uh, a theme for seven separate characters right. but you are striving um, and sometimes against some resistance you're striving to 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 get some continuity some musical continuity and thematic continuity in in the uh for the for the film, it 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 makes it, especially for the purposes of pr- previews and stuff like that, mm-hmm. it makes it feel more like a finished mm-hmm. film. Um, one of the pitfalls uh, in is, you know, sometimes it, it's hard to convince somebody, a director or a, a film editor, that even though the piece of music that's that they've put in there for a particular scene, even though it actually works better than the than the one that ties to the themes for the overall sense of the film it's mm-hmm. it's better to just um you know try and keep the keep the thread but it's a it's a hard go because it's undoubtedly that taken alone a particular scene works really well with this perfectly with this piece of music, a little less so with the thematic piece but you know if you're looking at a big picture mm-hmm. know, it's better to sometimes at least in my opinion it's better to 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 sort of tie the beginning, middle, and end. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: yeah, because I think about that when I when I listen to scores now, and I always go back to Bernard Herrmann or Max Steiner, and Steiner primarily with Gone with the Wind. When I'm explaining to people, because you've got Melanie's theme, you've got Scarlett's theme, you've got Tara's theme, you've got Rhett's theme. There's they're your basic themes, and you will hear them under that as an undercurrent through everything depending on who's on screen. Right. And sometimes they're layered. You've got Rhett and scarlet. You know, both the themes along with another underlying, you know, or underneath the overscore. Right. And I mean musically it's fantastic, but I just have to believe that that's challenging to find that sonic balance.
1: Yeah. it's when you're it's, editing. It's yeah, it's it's challenging even when it's possible, <laughs> you, and uh, uh, that's true. It, it, you, you know, you have to to think of a temp score as as you know part of a process. It's like like if you, it's like you're sculpting, right? And you're starting with a, a, a hammer and a chisel, and you're just banging away at the corners, and, you know, and you get as close as you can to that final figure, but it really will require a composer to come in and really, um, you know, there's a difference between, I've, I've said this to people before, you know, there's a, 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 a big difference between, um, uh, great music editing and great music. mm mm-hmm. You know, you can put something together that, that sort of serves the purpose of a preview or, or really provides direction and, you know, for the final score or, 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 supports the thing, but to really get, Underneath the scene, you know, you need somebody with a f-
0: finer brush. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, cu- I'm curious because you did the Disney remake of a reimagination of Mighty Joe Young. Yes. In a situation like that, we have the beloved original black and white that goes back to 1930 something. Right. Will you go back and listen to the music from decades ago if a film is being reimagined or reinvented for today's audience
1: well not necessarily I I, I think especially in the case of mighty mighty Joe young the the sort of the gap
0: mm-hmm. between
1: the aesthetics and the sensibility uh, of the original yeah. and the new one <laughs> you re- really the not too much to uh, to um, you know, to refer back to really. Uh, so the interesting thing about the temp on Mighty Jo Young was trying to address the African aspect of mm-hmm. it and rhythmically and so on and so forth. And uh, and uh, there was, so there was some actually some some layering of that, you know, just sort of uh, putting, you know, percussion mm-hmm. from one source under a
0: score from another. That was challenging and, and fun. And obviously with the percussive... That, that is now part of your library <laughs>
1: that, that's, right. that's
0: right
1: and um although you know it's interesting in terms of the library, I have to say that you know you tend not to go too far back, even you know obviously there are technical issues with scores that were recorded or older um but but even so even if even if a score was done in the last fifteen years, so nothing has changed all that much in terms of the availability of sequencers and and uh, you know uh, you, you tend not to go back too far. It's something things keep changing even in you know you you realize that things don't have to be that old to sound somehow dated.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: if, and uh, if you're working on a temp you don't you don't want to burden mm-hmm. you know a movie that's being seen for the first time with something that either someone will recognize as being from. Something a long time ago, or just isn't somehow doesn't sound current.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and what about something you know, like you do, you did the Lone Ranger, correct? Yeah, you know that you have a classic piece of music that must be incorporated. Yeah, must be incorporated. But then, how do you you how do you fine tune in the editing process on a film in as grand a scope as the Lone Ranger, which is now, you know it's so far removed from the television idea right
1: well you know the f- first place it it's been a long time since somebody did a, a a western especially on that scale um 310 to yuma is is an, uh, an exception of so, course,
0: you did young guns too did you? i did yeah, yes so.
1: that's a good wow <laughs> thanks yeah. for reminding me yeah you yeah. did
0: you know and i consider that a western some of my dearest stunt stunt friends, Neil Summers, being one of them, um, yeah, he they worked on both of them. So,
1: well, in, in, but in terms of the Lone Ranger, the, you know, the the William Tell Overture was written into the script and mm-hmm. it was saved t- until the end of the movie, and um, it was it was a real challenge. I think that uh, the original idea was to cut the scene, the train chase, mm-hmm. uh, to, to uh, you know, a uh, 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 bar-by-bar redo of the original. And finally, after really uh, – because it's a long scene, yeah. longer than the overture itself, that little section of the overture, um, finally came to – and gratefully came to the conclusion that, you know, you could quote it. But you needed to, um, you know, just sort of abandon it and deliver energy and storytelling, and then come back to it, you know, back and forth. Mm-hmm. And it, it feels like the William Tell Overture in, in, in spite of that. So I think that was a choice, but it was really a, a, a tough one because it is so um, perfect, geometric piece of music. Mm-hmm. You you can't add a beat right without. It's throwing you right off, especially because it's so familiar.
0: Yeah. And plus, and that, that final train sequence, it is one of the most spectacular stunt sequences on film. Yeah. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Uh, that means we're out of time, oh Ken. Oh my God. <laughs> we are, we're out of time today. Well, this is, this has been an absolute joy.
1: This has been a, that, that's, that's crazy. Is is the Trump administration over?
0: Uh, no, well, darn, darn. That's not what. Don't don't I wish our theme music could indicate that. Ken, I hope you will come back again. You are absolutely fascinating. I mean, talking about music editing temps. Uh, this has been just an absolute treat, and I know that the filmmakers who regularly listen to the show are. Uh, they have definitely learned something today.
1: Well, well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure, and it really did go by. I'll come back anytime.
0: Oh, and that's it for today. Next week, we may have a very big surprise for you. Until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.